Thank you for downloading this episode of The Zeros. This episode has an accompanying YouTube playlist. Go to bit.ly forward slash 0scinema90. That's bit.ly forward slash 0scinema90. The S is small and the C in cinema is big. Also, I'd just like to point out that this episode was recorded before the sad death of Ray Liotta, who will be much missed. Hello and welcome to The Zeros. If you haven't listened before, The Zeros are a set of years, the years of the 20th and 21st centuries that end in zero. And we're exploring the popular culture of these years and seeing how much it belongs more to the decade gone or the decade to come. So for instance, in series one, we're looking at 1990 and we're checking in with the fashion and art, cinema, television and music of the year and seeing how much we can say that it is 80s-ish and how much it is 90s-ish. So last week we had fashion and art with Murren. If you haven't heard that episode yet, please go back and listen. It's superb. And this week we are talking to Mick about cinema. So let's get going. So, Mick, we always start every episode with a time travel thought experiment. So I want you to imagine a teenager who has gone out for the afternoon and it's 1986 and they're going to watch a film in the cinema for the second time because they loved it so much. So they go to the counter in 1986, they buy their ticket, go on, I can't wait to see this film again because I know it's good. And then before they go into the auditorium, they pop into the toilet And unfortunately, the cubicle they're in is a time warp and they unknowingly step out eight years later in 1994, walk back through the lobby, not noticing the changes, sit down and the film that they watch is not the film they were expecting. So the first question is, what film were they going to see in 1986? And then what film comes on the screen in 1994 and why does it freak them out? Well, the uh, it would obviously be Platoon, 1986. Who doesn't love Platoon? Who wouldn't want to watch Platoon more than once, you know? Uh, I'm just thinking in terms of that era. Yes. And certainly all of the kids my age being super into Nam movies. So I, I guess Platoon. And 1994, I want to pick something weird. Pick something odd from 1994. I'd like to think of just some kind of bewildering art house movie. Okay. Or pseudo art house movie that was crossing over. Or Hal Hartley film, Amateur. I think that would I think that would probably be bewildering. Not in terms of the uh, content, but in terms of the tone. First of all, let's talk a bit about 1986 and about the impact that Platoon had and what it set in motion for the late 80s. Platoon itself, you've got to understand, is a project that had been kicking around for years. It was originally supposed to happen earlier that decade. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis was supposed to produce it for Oliver Stone, and there's literally a lawsuit. De Laurentiis actually pursues legal action to get out of his obligation to produce that film, which has got to count as one of his bigger mistakes. But post the success of Rambo First Blood Part 2, Nam movies are hot again, which means that Oliver Stone's long gestating, film about his experiences in, in the Nam, is 
suddenly a viable concept because obviously it's a film with serious intent, but they know if there's enough explosions in it, they'll get some of that Rambo audience. You know, it's not it's not a small introspective movie. It is quite large. It is bombastic. It's an Oliver Stone movie. You know, we, we know yes. the drill by the stage, but you know, it's a personal one about something that happened to him more or less. But it's it's you know that that happens and that spawns this other wave of movies. Yes, you've got the next year. You've got Full Metal Jacket. You've got Francis Ford Coppola trying to make a film about life at home in the military during Nam with his from Gardens of Stone. I think that's right. 88. You've got countless like post-Rambo, post-Platoon straight-to-video stuff like a Platoon Commander with Michael Dudikoff. If you remember Michael Dudikoff and you, you've got canon cinema really going deep in this. You know, so you've got uh, Missing in Action and Missing in Action to the beginning. So these are more action-y. They're more films. action-y but they're, you know, it's, it's a viable genre, right? Yes. And this is, you know, we have a wave of these movies. We have uh, Casualties of War. You know, that's Brian De Palma, which is much more harrowing film, I think, than a lot of the other ones. Yes, it's a, if Brian De Palma is allowed to direct scenes in which terrible things happen to women, he really applies himself. I am not saying it is a for a rape film because he clearly is not, but Brian De Palma really knows how to convey violence. So you have that. And you've also got weirder, smaller things that we kind of tend to forget about. There's a fantastic little movie from, I want to say, 88 or 89 called 84 Charlie Mopic. It is a found footage Vietnam War movie. So emulating Cannibal Holocaust type idea of... But as a Nam movie, right. and it's very much focused on the nuts and bolts of you know that kind of warfare, and it's it's all presented as footage from the Motion Picture Corps, sort of wing of the U.S. Army, following a, a platoon on a mission, and it it's fantastic. Now, granted, the part of Nam they're in looks a lot like California. <laughs> But it's an extremely well-made film. Uh, I think it's maybe the most interesting of that cycle. But it's Platoon and Rambo First Blood Part 2 kick this off. And there's a whole wave of them. And this sort of inflects action cinema as well. Even ignoring sort of regular things like, you know, the Vietnam War based or post-Vietnam Vietnam War films like Missing in Action. It also means that almost every protagonist in an action film is going to be a NAM veteran for a while. Uh-huh. Yes. That like becomes lethal a, weapon. And... Yes, lethal weapon. Even when it makes no sense. <laughs> Even when Mel Gibson is still visibly too young to have fought in the NAM. <laughs> you know, uh, it's... Yes. Y- yes. This 32-year-old was a NAM. This film was set now in 1987. You can, you can do the maths and it still doesn't work out. But it becomes a sort of integral thing for a while. And also, if you look at Predator, the setting of the deep jungle, the hard bush... Like that definitely evokes a Namish feel to it. Yeah. If we go forward to 1994, what I'm thinking of is the piss take of it in True Romance in 93, Body Bags 2. By the time we're at the other end of our eight years, they're taking the piss out of that. If we double back to 1990, 89-90, you've got Born on the 4th of July. Yes. Which is like a very much a post-NAM. Look what we did to the working class boys. So even by 90, we're we're running out of steam on this theme. But by certainly by the time this kid sits down to watch Amateur, there's no more NAM movies. No, and there is is action and violence in it, but it's presented in a, a kind of droll fashion. And that's it. The film sensibilities would be just deeply weird to somebody coming from 1986. How would that same kid feel if they sat down and it was Pulp Fiction, another 
1994 release, would there be a similar feel to that of how are you making humour out of a man who's just been emasculated with a shotgun? I think Pulp Fiction would still play okay. It would still seem strange that it was so talky, but it would still be extremely exciting, you know. still be very cinematic with the Hal Hartley stuff. It's almost as if he's deliberately trying to do things in as muted a fashion as possible. That's, that's kind of the joke. A lot of the time it's very deadpan and Pulp Fiction would be, you know, again, stylistically different from what you're getting in the late 80s, but still exciting and full of swearing and drugs and guns and stuff that would be deeply amusing to any 16 year old at any time. So you're saying by the mid 90s, you've got this post ironic sensibility to movie making that you would have no reference point for in the mid 80s. You, You would be feeling very uncanny sense of like who who's putting this on screen what, what's where where am i basically it's not being played straight and even by this stage you know because you have that you have that cycle of nam movies where they do everything other than i don't know exploring what it must be like from the point of view of vietnamese people a, a thing they just don't do but they, they do everything else you know uh yes. from high adventure to oh serious drama about what this did to you know american youth but that burns itself out yes. but there's a certain hyper sincerity even to films like Uncommon Valor or Rambo First Blood Part 2 I have to say the full title every time to differentiate it from the later film that's just called Rambo but yes those films even when they are horribly jingoistic and bombastic there's still a sincerity to them where it feels like the filmmakers genuinely believe that this is how the world is or that this is a thing they think people need to be told or reassured about and there's no irony possible exception Full Metal Jack Kubrick, Kubrick understands irony I'm going to do a little subsidiary time experiment about special effects and the looks of movie. Let's say it's a younger kid with his dad and they both happen to fall through the same time warp. So they're going to see Labyrinth and they wind up watching The Mask. So that's 86 to 94. What reference point do they have from going to quite complex animatronics and puppetry that they would have watched with Labyrinth? How are they coping with those Tex Avery referencing CGI effects in the mask well i mean i think it would be astounding and impressive but it's not as if they're suddenly viewing some kind of strange eldritch visual that they've no reference point for it is very very purposely recreating the kind of gags tex avery did so there is a large element of recognition already there it would be astounding that they're doing this in live action but the actual look of it would be like oh yes it wouldn't be like say suddenly seeing the bullet time effect from the matrix yes or something which would be oh gosh how did they do this and i've not seen anything like this ever before it's just a new application of a new technology to the same visual storytelling basically well look let's double back so we've jumped around our zero year quite a lot so you have chosen a film or a couple of films a month from 1990 and for pedants writing and going wait on imdb that says 89 the films mick has picked are based on their uk cinema release dates so so if you're looking at these and going oh it says on wikipedia or imd 1989 audiences in Britain and Ireland were seeing these films in 1990 and that's what's important is where 1990 fits in how much the echoes of the 80s I think this is an excellent way of doing this yes and again you always have to apply just what's the copyright date on the film it gets so confusing technically Silence of the Lambs is 1990 because that's the copyright date in it but it didn't Uh, open anywhere till January 1991 to my disappointment so I can't mention it maybe we'll sneak it in to discuss how the 90s will develop at the end the first film you've picked from January so as we're all 
stumbling into this new decade, Ridley Scott's Black Rain. So tell me why you've picked this film. Oh, because it's so representative of A, Ridley Scott's style at that point. And also, again, Ridley and Tony Scott have such an influence on the look of that kind of film. You know, the kind of a slick, aimed at adults thriller. And Black Rain's interesting because it, it's visually gorgeous, but it's also a film that's very, very much about America is scared of Japan and Japan being an economic powerhouse. And isn't that terrifying and scary? Oh no, Japan's economy is doing well. We're scared. Yeah, it's a, that's all over it. But also guilt. I mean, the, the title of the film and, and the monologue delivered towards the end by the old Yakuza about America's guilt from using the bomb. It is that weird mix of paranoia and extreme guilt, what we did to them and how quickly they bounced back. One thing I noticed was you've got a lot of these films like on a more comedic sense. You've got Gung Ho with Michael Keaton from the mid-80s as well. These films about Japanese industry infiltrating American society. And just how quickly, obviously, with the Japanese collapse of their economy in 92, these films just evaporate. This theme of Japan just disappears. Well, again, a lot of this is how well do these films do? I know Black Rain did well, but what if it had been insanely successful? How many more fish-out-of-water cop movies would we have had about cops in Japan? It makes about four times its budget compared to the really big hitters this year. It's not a massive moneymaker for the studio. No, but it's it, it is fine, you know, and it's going to recoup everything very quickly anyhow. You know, once it gets just TV seals and home video, it, it's fine. And I mean, the, the choice of Ken Takakura, this very famous Japanese actor, to play the, the Japanese buddy cop in it, was that a choice to try and get a Japanese audience for it? I can't speak to that. I have no idea if that was a commercial choice or whether or not it was just simply who is an actor who is Japanese, you know, yes. because you're obviously going to want to cast a Japanese actor yes. in, in this role if you can possibly do so. One thing I would say, I mean, I don't know if it, if it applies in this case, but certainly I think everyone on this island where we are right now is very excited to see Wild Mountain Time <laughs> or at least mock its trailer because yes. we could, there's some pleasure to be had in mocking bad Hollywood versions of what they think Ireland is like and I, I'm going to assume this is a universal desire yes if you've got a vibrant enough film industry and you're used to seeing your own country depicted by your own countrymen that you can take a warped amusement in how the Americans get it wrong so uh, that, that could have been a thing that Japanese audiences would have been interested in you know how, how badly does this movie screw up its depiction of us which certainly the Karate Kid films that had come out by this time had managed to do by casting an American actor as Mr. Miyagi doing, like you're going, how long has this dude been in America? Why does he still talk like that? Yes, yes. Why does he have this accent? You know, And, and they'd all been familiar with him from Happy Days being a total yank as well. Yes, <laughs> so. yes. And it, it's so condescending. Why could he just not have an American accent? It would make no difference. But then they kind of want him to be human Yoda. But, oh, very much so. Yes. Whereas with this, the subtlety of Kantakakur's performance, it's an interesting character he's playing. The, the, the overall theme seems to be that Michael Douglas is right and police corruption is good. And the Japanese cop whose character's name I can't remember should get in on it. And it finishes with him handing over the MacGuffin of the film. Like, yeah, here, have some fun as he's well, leaving. It's again, it's almost cut from the same cloth as William Friedkin's To Live and Die in L.A., where it's well, I'm going to make a serious adult police thriller. And in order for this to be a serious adult police thriller, I'm going to A-cab it up, which, yes. which is an entirely legitimate approach, yes. especially given everything we know about problems with real world policing. But it, it's also, it also becomes a trope. 
you know, this is also is almost as cliched as, you know, he's a tough cop who does things his own way. And, he, you know, yeah. he's got 48 hours left on the case because the DA is shouting at his cap. Like, there's been some James Elroy novels by this point. Elroy hasn't hit his full stride yet. Yes, But yes. Elroy has written Blood on the Moon and those Lloyd Hopkins novels. And yes. one of those has been adapted already. And the idea that we can have bastard cop protagonists. And that's a serious theme. See, they're an anti-hero, right? And I think part of it is if you look at the whole police procedural genre, certainly in cinema, in the late 40s, when Dragnet starts his radio show, it's Jack Webb, the star and creator of that show, is consciously creating it as a response to hard-boiled noir detectives. You know, so it's like, no, cops are good. Cops are great. We need cops. This is all about the system, yes. And that continues. But once you start getting post Watergate you start getting films where it's like no no we can actually make our cops terrible anti-hero bastards again they're not detectives as noir protagonists might have been but we can still do that coming back to the film and its place in between the 80s and 90s Ridley Scott is about to hit a bit of a purple patch I mean the following year complete shift of tone with Thelma and Louise then a relative flop in 1492 with Gerard Depardieu's Christopher Columbus I think 1492 might be one of those films where more people are familiar with the soundtrack than the movie I think the soundtrack is just glorious. I I know so many people who own the soundtrack and have never seen the film and don't care to. Including my auntie Kathleen, because I'm going, you wouldn't want to see that film. It's like shockingly violent. And 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 not great. No, not great. When we're hitting towards the edge, other outer edge of our time frame, 86 to 94, 93, he manages such an iconic moment when he releases the director's cut of Blade Runner, which I think relates back to the look of this film and the beginning of the era of director's cuts starts with this and he gets elevated Blade Runner's director's cut elevates him to this other level whereas I think if you see this and someone who watch over to watch over me he's very much still jobbing commercial director in 89 88 89 90 well he's the thinking man's Alan Parker yes yes excellent so the Brit and America Yes, he, comes, he came from advertising so everything was glossy and wonderful. Yes, And yet, by the mid-90s, he's considered ultimate auteur, especially because then there's a director's cut of Alien comes out. And, and Blade Runner, especially with talking about soundtracks, Van Gallis' soundtrack for Blade Runner finally coming out on record yeah. in time for the director's cut. Everything suddenly in the 90s, Blade Runner, especially with cyberpunk and industrial, Blade Runner is seen as such an influence on that. And Ridley Scott, who, as we see from his later output, is still a jobbing Hollywood director. Well, I don't think jobbing is quite the word. He he is insanely prolific. He will not stop. He's going to die on set. But certainly with this film, what I kept noticing in Asaka was the reflection of neon and wet concrete. Yes, he's, he's gotten to this location and thought, brilliant, it looks like Blade Runner already. And the paranoia about Japan is like infused in Blade Runner as well the 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 Coca-Cola adverts with traditional geishas on the sides of buildings so it, it's already there and this film a lot of people lump these films in together that they are to be watched together almost yes we're, um, we're scared of rising Japanese economic might and again that's in it's in Die Hard as well it's yes. it's all over you know a lot of the media at this time you'll find episodes of random TV shows at that point that are also like oh this episode's going to be about a Japanese company or business persons yeah there is a, um, I, I don't know if you remember the short-lived 1987 Max Headroom 
Yes. Um, I don't want to say live action, but the uh, dramatic fiction show. Yes. yes. Which is one of the first sort of, I think, the first cyberpunk sci-fi TV show. And throughout that show, there are references to the Japanese mega corporation called Zigzag. And there's one episode that's entirely about the Zigzag Corporation. And we see the Japanese characters in it in the boardroom. And it's the most racist and alarmist thing ever. It's it's 1940s World War II propaganda posters level of... Oh of anti-Asian sentiment. It's crazy. That's so interesting to hear. This film does seem to buck against it a bit when Michael Douglas uses that awful racial slur early on and then it turns out that the man guiding to the lift is anglophonic and very calm and bemused in how he goes, yeah, you just called me the Asian equivalent of the N-word. But how Michael Douglas's story arc is to learn to be a bit more Japanese while Kent Takakur's character is to become a bit more American. Yeah, they both have plot arcs. They both have character arcs. They yes. Both, they both change. To meet each other somewhere across the Pacific. So I think it is considerably less racist than that. It's still quite racist. It's still quite racist. And this kind of, in, I think the last echoes of this are the film Rising Sun. Yes, with Sean Connery and Wesley Snipes. Yes, which is also super racist and terrified of Japanese people. And weirdly... Robocop 3. There is a major plot point that is that OCP is being bought out by a scary Japanese company and Robo has to fight a uh, sort of cyber ninja. Oh, good God. It's it's all it's all of the things in there. And again, with that, I think some of it's motivated by a genuine love of the Japanese anime and manga from that time. But at the same time, it's also super racist because it, it's Frank Miller wrote the script. And, oh, fuck. You know, yes. yeah, and this is what you get. You know, it, it's Frank Miller. One last thing about this when you when you bring up anime audiences in the uk don't see akira until 91 and i remember on the vhs box of akira that we had in our house big references to blade runner yeah like so the notion there's a quote akira... from there's a quote from time out saying that it's a, it's a tower of neon on steel to rival blade runner yes. there's some quote like that yes yes so very very quickly western audiences through the sudden explosion of the manga video properties, Rutsuka Doji, and often they look like hyper-violent versions of Battle of the Planets, but that that very soon we're about to start hearing Japanese stories told by Japanese people. Fair enough, with awful overdubs of quick-speaking American actors, but this seems to be the end of that era of Japanese stories being told through American paranoia and guilt and we're about to get I mean Akira explodes Akira is about to just change everything like yes but I think the largest cultural footprint to get from Japan hitting the west at this point and again it is still mediated through strange western adaptations and recontextualizing but it's Power Rangers Power Rangers completely changes everything when Power Rangers hits in the 90s it's like okay well folk have tried this before and it didn't quite work or they'd tried it before with animated shows, like you mentioned Battle of the Planets, and that's a weird recut of a Japanese TV show that's... Much more violent again. Much more violent, uh, and also has a lot more sexual content. Which is why they brought the robot in. It's why they brought the Seven's Arc 7 into, yeah, paper over the cracks. And it's also why you can still see Princess's pants a lot in it. <laughs> you can see her panties a lot, and that's she weird and distressing. She was my first crush. She was my first crush at like four years old. <laughs> 
So you, you've got that and you have to think Voltron is the other one, right? Yeah, Voltron's a big right. example where, okay. you know, uh, where they, again, it's we can't afford to make our own animated TV show, but if we buy in this Japanese thing and recut it and redub it, we will have made a TV show that we yes. can sell fairly, you know, successfully, in fact, very successfully to lots of markets. It's weird. I don't think we're seeing a lot of modern Japanese cinema in the West at that point. You know, certainly not 1990. You know, we're not, we're not really getting it. A few years later, we'll have that boom the, mm. the you know of distributors in the uk like tartan picking up titles from asia you yes. know we'll be seeing all of these amazing hong kong films and we'll be seeing sort of you know the, the films of takeshi katano and and the j-horror yeah. ringu if we're going to the late 90s onwards. yes but yeah. yeah but right now it's not really we're happening not we're still getting it like this is an american film about japan and just one last honourable mention in this is the cinematographer Jan de Bont, who's very busy that year. He's also working with Joel Schumacher on Flatliners. He, as we hit towards 94, obviously his big moment where people start talking about a cinematographer is when he directs Speed. And everyone's like, well, this is the guy that photographed Die Hard. And what I find interesting about that is that he's, if you watch a lot of his films like Die Hard or Flatliners, he's big for his nighttime headlight flares. And Ridley Scott clearly has told him not to do that. There's, it's, it's a much, from a lighting point of view, a much calmer palette than you're seeing in other films that Jan de Bont photographs. That it's, it's a lot more. There's just a different, a different lighting tone to it. it. Must have been driven by Ridley Scott. He must have been very clear what he wanted. Scott's reputation is that he's very, very gifted in terms of lighting and camera. Yes. And that, you know, he did extreme. There's stories about, uh, like, on the shooting of Alien, him overruling the cinematographer and removing lights. Who? You know, uh, wow. like, Scott knows how to operate. Yes. You know, Scott, 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 if no one else was there, he could still set up the shot. It would take him longer, you know, but yes. he could still do it. He's, a, he's like James Cameron. He, uh, he understands all of the technical components. And this is why he's a king of Hollywood, basically. This is, well, this is why stuff looks amazing. He fully understands the process. He fully understands what this lens will do or what this type of light in that position will do to the scene. He's, you know, an extremely gifted visual stylist who he knows how all of the toys work. Yes, I understand. Okay, well, look, we'll move on to February and a complete gear shift. Now we're going to talk about the film Steel Magnolias, which is an ensemble piece with a very, very big female cast including Dolly Parton, Olympia Dukakis, Shirley MacLaine, Sally Field, Sally Field, Tom Skerritt, one of the very few males who are in the background of this. But most importantly, I think, and tell me if this is why you picked it, a very young Julia Roberts. No, I picked it simply because it's the kind of movie we just don't, you wouldn't see in huge wide release anymore. You know, I, tell me more. It's a film that's basically aimed at a female audience generally. Also, I think maybe aimed at my mum specifically, uh, but it's, it's full of a, you know, it's an ensemble. We have got all of these great actresses. If you're not enjoying watching all of these terrific actresses do their thing, I, I can't help you. you know, maybe cinema's not for you nobody's dialing in anything. Everyone puts in great performances in this. Now, I've heard various murmurs from people from various parts of the American South about how none of the accents make sense in combination. Because, again, when Hollywood makes them set in the American South, they kind of don't care. <laughs> they don't care about getting the regionally specific quirks or pronunciations consistent. I can't speak to any of that, but I'm told it is a bit Hodge of a... Hodge. Yes, but that's, that's fine. I, I don't care. My belief, this belief was not 
unsuspended at any point by that. I don't have an ear for it. And I no, no. thoroughly enjoyed this. But as you said, films like this, I would lump in with the likes of Driving Miss Daisy, films, as you said, or, or even Moonstruck. So I know these are in many ways quite yeah, different mi- films. Mi- mid-budget studio films yeah. that are aimed at grown-ups and have actors doing their thing. Where the main yes. draw is, there's a story here and we've got these terrific actors. You know, there's something resolutely old-fashioned about it. Very and that, that's so. great. I guess only if you have a very low attention span. Like, I, I think our 16-year-old boy is not going to be into this. But I, again, it, it's a fantastic film. It's well-made. And again, that cast... Oh, it's stunning. You could just you could just have that cast read out of the phone book and I'd still be there. And what I find interesting about it is it's very, very clearly adapted from a play by the playwright and it is structured in five distinct yeah. acts. And at times it really makes you feel like you're in the theatre. The delivery yeah. of a lot of the lines is yeah. very stagey. And yet I didn't mind that. I watched this because you put this on the list. I had never, ever watched okay, it because okay. I was that 16-year-old boy. I was yeah, like, so you, Fuck I'm this. not watching this movie, yes. This is, it's this is a revelation to me. Right. The film is, it's an incredible cast, but these are all stars or a star about to be. Yes. You know, if you know what I mean, the, yes. the, the wattage there is high. Hugely high. If we consider we're looking at this nexus point between the 80s and the 90s, this seems like a high watermark and a very quick receding line for this kind of film. I can't think in the mid-90s of any films like this. You don't see Dolly Parton in the cinema a lot in the 90s, and she's fucking brilliant in this. She's pure Dolly. What we all think of Dolly, we all want her to be our granny. She's fucking stunning in this her salon being the center point of this community of of I mean, squabbling I, I think, loving I think, woman i think maybe the only film that feels like it might have been a reaction to it is fried green tomatoes ah yes i have to say tomatoes because it's that's that's because yeah. yes uh, right where it's, it's again it's it's based on a novel but it's the same thing it's we've got a murderer's row of great actresses it's mm. set in the american south it's you know it's certainly marketed as a women's picture you know you've got that and i can't think of anything much else no because the Oscars in 1990, I think Driving Miss Daisy does quite well at that. Jessica Tandy, she's not got long left. Olympia Dukakis still goes on. She's in this the Tales of the City yeah. TV show. Shirley MacLaine really disappears from public view after this. She's not got the same output on into the 90s. Um, yeah, but then I, again, I suppose if we imdb this, how many of these people are appearing in TV projects that, we, that we're unfamiliar with? <laughs> yes. And again, the idea of having an entire entirely female ensemble carrying something that's again just had of an impact on tv you know yes. I, I want to say the sitcom designing women but i've only ever seen two episodes of it and i i recall it only vaguely but where it's the same thing that we've got these are a bunch of amazing actresses and we're going to put them all in this one sitcom and let them just let them rip yeah. I, th- I think what's interesting about watching this at a time when the old the mythical bechdel bechdel or bechdel test is failed regularly even on this list this is a film where the male characters are peripheral and incidental to the female story arcs and yeah. where you've got these actresses really throwing each other curveballs of performances knowing that they can catch them i was so impressed by it yeah. i was so impressed by this film but there she does stand out a yeah. complete unknown julia roberts doing some very very serious physical performance and emotional performance she's already a star and and she's about to become so dominant in cineplexes on in so many movies yes but there's a problem 
which is, I can tell people that Julia Roberts was a huge star in the 90s, but you say to me, oh, what are the great Julia Roberts movies I should watch? I'm kind of drawing a blank because it's not like she has Barbara Stanwyck's career. And again, part of that is again, well, nobody's getting to make as many movies as Barbara Stanwyck got to make. People like Pretty Women. I, I don't. I yes, like the, the we'll only, get on to that in a bit. You know, but Julia Roberts, she's in bad rom-coms and flatliners. Yes. For the next decade, right up until... Aaron Brockovich, basically. You could argue, don't know how you feel about Richard Curtis's one film he keeps remaking, but I think she's great and Notting Hill stands up as a, a very entertaining oh yes okay yeah but Aaron Brockovich basically she's a seriously talented star who's misused throughout the 90s and you know in a year's time she's about to be Tinkerbell in a complete flop of a Spielberg oh, God, film yeah we all love her she's a superstar immediately she's always there she's she's there as a Googleplex draw her name is very very big very quickly very yeah. big on posters but when you go back to this film you see why everyone wanted a piece of her oh yeah yeah and, and Mystic Pizza as well yes. you know, she's so good in those two films you can understand why she was immediately given the, the lead in Pretty Women which which we'll we'll get on to. Yes. Um, is there anything else you want to say about Steam Magnolias and its place in British and Irish cinemas in 1990 before we move on? I don't know the stats. Okay. But I suspect that this is a movie that got bought for a lot of uh, mums on VHS. Ah, that's something I will, uh, I'll find out and I'll put in the notes below the I, I recall episode. this being in a lot of like friends, mums' houses had this. It was one of those things people had on VHS, you know. And I remember the premiere for it on Channel 4 being a big deal. Yes, yes. And its slot being very carefully aimed at that audience. Yes. Sunday night, it was, they knew who they were going to get. Yeah. It would have been the Sunday night premiere equivalent of Poldark. We know yes. what we're getting. We know who's watching this. Yes. We know what time of day this is on, why it's on now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's move forward to March and the film that blew my mind when I saw this was out in cinemas in 1990, Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, yeah. Now, Weekend at Bernie's, I honestly thought at the latest would have been out in 1988. And when I watched it, I was thinking this looks like it could have been made in 1986. Yeah, it's a film out of time. Totally out it's, of time. It's it's the la it's the last eighties frat bro comedy, and it's it's there at this place, and it's kind of completely fallen down the memory hole. Except also, it totally hasn't, because every time we make a joke about somebody who's dead or nearly dead being propped up as if they're still alive, this is our reference point. As a pop culture reference, it was joked about in Friends in the nineties. Yes, it's known to be a really fucking stupid film. Yes. And yet it has fully entered the pop culture canon yes, yes. as a reference point. When they announced that Queen Elizabeth II mm -hmm. is entering a new phase, <laughs> uh, you know, and I think they meant that she's cutting back public appearances and that we, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But almost immediately social media is full of people saying she's already died. They're going to spend the next couple of months, weekend at Bernie's seeing the, the Queen. And that's the reference point. And yeah, it's every, yeah. everyone knows what they mean. They redid the poster after Jeffrey Epstein stopped being alive. They did a weekend at Jeffrey's poster montage as well with oh Donald Lord. Trump. You know, every time biologists discover a species they thought was extinct, it's that it's a comedy film equivalent of the Sialacanth. <laughs> really? We, we thought we thought these guys were only in the fossil record and look what's in this fishing net. If you look at it for a start, like the baggy chinos and big shirts, the presence of Andrew McCarthy, who does not cross into the 90s successfully No, he does not. He was 
was The Pretty Boy of yes. Pretty in Pink and Mannequin. Massive films. And my mum would still go a bit funny at the mention of his name. But Keanu and Brad are about to blow him out the water. When I watched this, because I'd never seen it, so I watched it when you when you put it on the list. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, it's, it's grand because the real comparator I want to make is between Andrew McCarthy and John Cusack. Because One Crazy Summer and Better Off Dead, those mid-80s teen movies that John Cusack were in were very comparable they, they for t- me. Two films he did for Savage Steve Holland. Aha. Who does uh, the director who transitions away from making feature films. Oh, really? In the 90s, yeah. He goes back to TV animation. But John Cusick survives because I guess John Cusick seems like hip Gen X before that was really a thing. That's what I was going to say. And yet the same sort of beta loser that Andrew McCarthy plays in Weekend at Bernie's or, or really Andrew McCarthy's buddy in Weekend at Bernie's is the same kind of characters that John Cusack's playing in the mid 80s but if you consider this coming out around the same time as Say Anything John Cusack transitions so beautifully into the 90s and Andrew McCarthy just disappears well again John Cusack also has a better understanding of material and he has a relationship with the writers I believe it's it's a screen artist, Steve Pink, who uh, I think from memory adapted High Fidelity for him and wrote Gross Point Blank. Aha. And I know there are collaborators. Yes. Kuzak is actively seeking out things to do. I understand. And that that will play to his strength as a performer. Whereas McCarthy's like, I'm that pretty boy. Like, yes. everyone loved me in Pretty Yes, Pink. What, what will I be in next? You know, what and scripts just, are there for me? And yeah. there, there are, you know, there are none. And also there just seems to be that his look like if you consider he's he's trading in a lot on his look but Keanu Depp and Brad Pitt are about to just destroy him the the the, the heartthrobs of the 90s are going to look very different from him yes and Depp and Pitt both have a vibe we've not seen before mhm yes which just so resonates with everything West Coast in the 90s especially when you're sharing a screen with Anthony Kiedis in a fight scene in Point Break you are pitching yourself in a very different space from a John Hughes veteran survivor of Andrew McCarthy and of course John Hughes stops making John Hughes movies I was about to say well we'll get on to that yes it's absolutely amazing just how much you see this film which he's still given the starring role in and he just drops off a cliff I think that's why I found it so interesting you pick this because as you said it's a film out of time and Andrew McCarthy fucking disappears just disappears from anything like and, and Mannequin had been huge it had been his vehicle away from Batpack into adulthood well, <laughs> he thought. I think. He thought. Well, it's a it's a terrible movie. Yes. So. Oh, but Kim Cattrall's so hot in it. Sorry, <laughs> Kim yeah. Cattrall in the mid eighties is the ideal woman. But anyway, is there anything else you want to say about it? Watching it, it was such an anachronism for me. I couldn't quite get a fix on what is it about it that's so fucking eighties. When you think this film is out after Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, yes, it just but feels it's so out it's, of time. It's when was the script developed? Right. How long did it take the script to get before cameras? How long did it spend in post? When did they actually release it? The yes. film comes out in 1990, but it is, to all intents and purposes, a film from the mid to late 80s. There's a quote, I can't remember who it's from. It might be uh, unattributed, but it's a jazz musician saying, if I knew the jazz of the future, I'd play it already. <laughs> and I think, I think all artists yes. are kind of bound by that, and anyone making film... Or writing entertainments is also bound for that. They didn't know what 1990 was going to be like. No. You know, they had to go forward with what they thought was a good idea for a movie now. What would be a commercial premise? Will this entertain? The films aimed at audiences like this are going to diverge into so many different directions. Cameron Crowe, who I already mentioned, is going to do very well with the heirs to these audiences. 
with singles and with Jeremy Maguire and he already has done with Say Anything. Heathers has already pitched a new idea yeah. and yeah. Christian Slater very much blows the kind of Andrew McCarthy's out of the water with Heathers and pump up the volume. Everything is about to just completely transform and change and when it comes to dopey comedies if we go to 1994 and Dumb and Dumber you know Gross Out is going to replace this entirely so it's just that it's lingering here is so peculiar and really gets the heart of what this whole series is about finding these anachronistic moments you wouldn't associate to let you know that these zero years are a crossing point anything else to say about Weekend and Bernie's before we move on to April? No let's just move on to April let's, move, let's get away Bernie's dead <laughs> so here is a hilarious example of how delays between British and American release dates led to a very peculiar cinema release date for the third in the Griswold Vacation series, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, released in April 1990 in British and Irish cinemas. Yes, and released as National Lampoon's Winter Vacation when I saw it advertised, yes, because (laughs) Christmas had long passed. (laughs) And, well, technologically there's a thing happening here as well when we had delayed releases. And we don't think about this now because all film distribution is almost entirely digital. But back then, if a film got a large release in the US, you could be looking at 1,500, 2,000, maybe even 3,000 prints of a film. And striking the prints is the most expensive part of, you know, this process. So if you could hold back release in other English-speaking territories, you could save some of the less knackered prints from your US release and save those for your release in UK and Ireland and Australia and New Zealand. This is a thing that happens more often than I think we generally imagine. I certainly remember seeing things that were theoretically their first week of release and the print was already kind of scratchy and damaged. And again, this is part of the strategy here. It's we're going to release this film. These movies are known in the UK and Ireland. We're probably not going to get a huge Christmas success from this. So we, if we just move the release. And again, six months later, it's going to be on VHS for Christmas, yes, which is the course. main thing, right? But yeah, you've got this completely displaced Christmas movie playing in almost summer to, I imagine, indifference. I can't imagine watching it when it's warm. What they might be banking on is that the original two movies had a following. The Griswold character was Chevy Chase's second most famous character after Fletch in the 80s. And he is very much a precursor to Homer Simpson, a sort of oafish American everyman where his hubris is a great source of humour. The mix of dysfunctional and yet strangely sentimental family drama and just great John Hughes scripts. And this is the end of John Hughes writing more edgy Uh, adult fare. Yes. Yeah. So they're probably relying on that to overcome the fact that people are digesting Easter eggs while watching a Christmas movie in the cinema. Yes, and the other thing you have to remember is by 1990, audiences are already very clear about the distinction between a real film that is played in cinemas and a film that has gone straight to video. So this is also an era where you have things like Canon films making sure that their films that are effectively direct-to-video titles are still playing at least a week in one of their cinemas somewhere. And you would see these things advertised in trade publications as genuine UK cinema release. And again, I don't think there'd have been that much of a stigma if something from a known franchise had gone straight to video in the UK. But they want that legitimacy. You want to be reviewed on the television and in the newspapers. You want people to know it's a real film. Because your real money's going to be made in Woolworth that Christmas. People buying it for stocking fillers. Yes, and... or seeing it, seeing it on v, you know, VHS at Christmas time. It's interesting that Chevy Chase is about to have a very shit 90s. And he had been massive in the 80s, but he really does not cross over the decade at all. No, no. He, uh, he makes a number of missteps. Fletch Lives is a disaster. Yes, and he does Memoirs of an Invisible Man, 
with John Carpenter, bizarrely. which is kind of the only John Carpenter work for hire feature film. It's I think it may be the only John Carpenter film that isn't called John Carpenter's <laughs> insert title here. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, John Carpenter does this because Ivan Reitman walked from the project. Right. Because apparently, I don't know if you've heard this, but apparently Chevy Chase can be difficult. I have heard <sighs> some rumors that yeah, he can yeah. be a total dick. Yes. Yeah. So it, it's that. And it's again, it's Chevy Chase thinking he can be Cary Grant. And that's not where skill set lies. I love the first two vacation films. I think it's some of John Hughes's best work. See, my favorite is the third one. Oh, the Christmas one? Yes. Right. I, I did not enjoy this as much as European Vacation. I thought the final meltdown moment you always get with Griswold, I enjoyed it less than especially the rant in the car in the first one, where he's where we have to surgically remove the smash from our fucking faces. You know, we don't get that same, it feels tired by now, but please or, prove me well, wrong. Well, no, I mean, I think part of it is you, you don't have as interesting a director. Yes. So the first two, you've got Harold Ramis. Oh, right. And European Vacation is Amy Heckerling, who's oh. extremely underrated and undervalued. Um, no, wow, wow. I didn't... And this third one is, I want to say, Jeremiah Chechnik. You are right. Well, Jeremiah S. Chechnik, as he is right. listed. Yeah. Yes. yes. And it, it's fine. There's nothing particularly wrong with it. But I don't think he brings the same level of subversion or glee that Ramus or Heckling brought to theirs. I like it plenty. There's so much stuff in it. I also like the idea that it is the only Griswold film where we're actually spending all of the time with them in their normal surroundings. I thought if they'd done a fourth one, that should still have just been them in their house. With that sort of more Simpson-esque dysfunction. Yes, we would just see how terrible it is to be in the same space as really any of them for any length of time. All the characters in this are so awful, terrible people. And Randy Quaid reviving his character from the first one. Yes, yes, Cousin Eddie, yes. Um, And um, I, I mean, the Hugh script is great, but I just feel like the performances don't quite punch. I think that the funniest scenes for me are the horror that the yuppie couple next door experience with Julia Louis-Dreyfus about to be a lot more famous or already I think being in that first season of Seinfeld. It's already sort of a, and the older I get the the more I understand that they're right. I mean they're also still terrible yuppies but I, I think they're right to be appalled by everything Clark Griswold does. What's interesting is both Beverly D'Angelo and Chevy Chase really do not have a great 90s but the number of actors who are about to have a great time so you've got uh, Juliette Lewis uh, taking on the daughter role and you've got uh, Johnny Galecki who's about to become Darlene's love interest in Roseanne before he goes on to Big Bang Theory and obviously uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus as well these peripheral actors are the ones who are about to have a good decade while Chevy and Beverly are about to drop off a cliff yeah, but though Beverly D'Angelo, it's, a, it's a her own fault for aging past the point of 35. How and does she? Because once, once women get past that, they, they don't register on camera. It's like vampires and murders. Yes, <laughs> it's, just, it's just unfortunate. It can't be helped. There's no systemic sexism in Hollywood. No, yeah. not at all. The other thing then to talk about is, yeah, this is the last hurrah for John Hughes for frat boyish or gross out humour. There's a lot of toilet humour, specifically chemical toilet humour in this one. Not so much of an excuse to show Beverly D'Angelo's breasts, which is probably for the best. Um, well, no, there's still a lot of male gazy shenanigans in it. You know, yes. when Clark goes to the laundry. Country, yeah, yes. laundry, yes. It's laundry, not perfume. That's right, yeah. We'll get back to John Hughes and Christmas a bit later. But let's move on to a real wild card pick in this. Let's get on to May and let's go on to Nuns on the Run. Why Nuns on the Run as your choice for May 1990? Because it's just so 
I guess, representative of how terrible British cinema is at this point. That's not to say there aren't still good British films being made, right? We still have Ken Loach, there's Mike Lee is still working, Peter Greenaway is still doing interesting and vital work, but British mainstream cinema, such as it is, is garbage at this point. This is one of the high points in the of the year in terms of British cinema. It's, look, look, look famous people in a film with an easily communicated comedic premise. That's sort of also in the title, and it's not good. You've got one of the Pythons, you've got one of the uh, biggest stars of alternative comedy, you've got a plot that's sort of deliberately echoing Some Like It Hot yeah. and classic alien comedy, and yeah, it, it, it just has not aged well and wasn't great at the time. There's no material for these actors to really work with and everything about it looks like shitter British TV at that time. The cinematography, the, the setting, like London in the late 80s is a yeah. fucking garbage place. It looks shit. It looks cheap. And would you say your expertise is in British sitcoms crossing over into cinema? Does it have that feel of some of the worst examples of a sitcom cinema movie about it. It kind of feels worse than that. I think the closest thing it resembles is very old people like me might dimly recall the comedian Dick Emery and Dick Emery didn't have a sitcom. Dick Emery had a show where he did various characters so that when Dick Emery got swept up in late 60s 1970s wave of British films based on TV comedy shows there wasn't a sitcom plot that they could expand so he did a film called Ooh You Are Naughty which gives him an excuse to play all of his characters again but the plot is that he is a career con man slash criminal, yes, yes and he is yes. trying to recover some important information to help him get to a stash of loot, and through the course of it, he has to pretend to be various people, and so that's an excuse for him to do his, oh, he can do his posh middle class woman, he can do his repressed businessman character, he can do whatever characters he has, so the film is a loose excuse for him just to do all of his characters and his bits. So it's like I, an hour and a half sketch show with well, a plot hanging it's, over it's, it. There is a plot, but it's sort of, it's a film like Fletch, right? Where yeah. the format is, this character's going to pretend to be someone else funny now. Uh, I, I'm using funny advisedly. I, and that film's not good. But in terms of that as a tactic, if you're going to have Eric Idle and Robert Coltrane in disguise, yeah. in some kind of crime caper, it would probably be more fun if you give them a whole bunch of disguises yes. through the course of a movie where they got to do different characters because Robert Coltrane's an extremely gifted mimic. Yeah, you can, no, do, totally. you can like, do lots of things, yes. And, and had proven that versatility throughout the 80s on TV and in films. And uh, again, Eric Idle. It would be fun to see Eric Idle do a bunch of the type of characters he'd done on Python. And yet they're trapped for a lot of this film in a convent. And the only joke is... Uh, there are nuns, yes. Yeah. Here's the thing as well. It's in colour. One of the reasons Billy Wilder shot some like it hot in black and white. In fact, the main reason is that he did not think his actors would be convincing in disguises as women if you shot in colour. If you look at any of the colour production photos from that, they look horrific. Where you're like, yeah, that, that wouldn't work yeah no, the idea that anyone's going to be fooled would just seem too absurd a couple things about this and the idea of 80s hitting 90s this film sank handmade films so for people who don't know, Handmade Films was set up by the Beatle George Harrison to fund Life of Brian when no studio would touch it. And Handmade Films was responsible for Time Bandits and most importantly, I think, With Nil and I, which by 1990, everybody is going down the video shop and renting multiple times and quoting every fucking line of it. The expectation of Handmade Films as a thing coming out of the top of the screen for a teenager 
in Britain at that point was With an Eye or Time Bandits or Life of Brian. I or The Missionary it. or you know any yes. of the uh, or even like the Mona Lisa. Yes, yes. They had made terrific films. But they were in financial trouble by the late 80s. And I think, did they believe that this was going to rescue them? That this was going to be a big hit? I have no idea. Because it fucked them. They're, they were doomed after that. Yes, but I think they kind of, I don't want to say they deserved it, but yeah, I think they did deserve it. I think this is yeah. a terrible movie. If they had aimed higher or had just made a much more inventive, stupid comedy. Yes, it is so tired. It is so cliched. But also... It, as you said, it's so indicative of British cinema just before you get Mike Lee regularly at the Oscars, just before you get Ken Loach really hitting a stride. And if we stretch to 1994 and Shallow Grave, just before you get the rise of Danny Boyle and of, a, of British cinema being something so successful in America. Yeah, it's tired. Yeah. And it's it's tired and, and it's just so weary to, to just even have to sit and, and contemplate it. And yet you made me. Thank you. It's fully representative. Most interestingly, Jonathan Lynn, the writer and director, would go on to huge success with my cousin Vinny. But Jonathan Lynn's an extremely talented guy. He'd already I... made Clue and he goes on to do reasonably well at a level in Hollywood. Yeah, but again, it's who's supporting them. Who else is there providing support? And this is not to say that Jonathan Lynn is not talented. He's an extremely talented writer-director. Yeah. But again, a lot of this is who is providing you with support, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned Clue. Clue is produced by John Landis. There's a lot of Landis in Clue. Yes. Um, good comedy Landis, not bad committing manslaughter, but not going to prison Landis. Yeah, that, the Landis we prefer. It's that. He doesn't have the support and there's no real joy in it. The cast aren't given enough to do and it's dull in that way. Like you mentioned My Cousin Vinny and you could put forth an argument that that is Joe Pesky's best work or you could put forth an argument that that's Marisa Tomei's best work. Well, she won the Oscar. For yeah, it, I so. wouldn't argue with it. You, you could even say that actually might be Fred Gwynn's best work. Again, these yeah. are all terrific actors. Yeah. But I think with that, it's Pesky hadn't really been given a chance to do comedy. And there's such a joy in the performance. And with this, it feels, oh, well, it's guys dressed up as nuns. That's the joke. It's just so flat and dull. And let's return to... and. We'll return to it once more again in this list. Casual anti-Asian racism, the, the the comedy triads in this. It's everything about it is lazy and boring and dull and speaks to a very low expectation of audiences in filmmakers in Britain at that time. The film's bad enough that Michael Winner could have made it. <laughs> Fuck. Like, if I couldn't remember who directed it, I'd go like, did Michael Winner do it? It feels like it might be a Michael Winner movie. I think that's the most damning indictment. I think we've got to move on from that. That's brutal. Sorry to interrupt the broadcast here, but I have to now give a content warning. We are about to discuss the film Pretty Woman. And during that conversation, we are going to be talking about cinema depictions of sex work and sexual violence. So if you would rather not listen to that, fast forward seven minutes from right now. Let's go to June. When you say name a film from 1990 to people who were around, I think this is going to be maybe second or third on the list. Pretty Woman. To me, it seems obvious why you picked this. It just screams 1990. So tell me more. Well, it's a film directed by Gary Marshall, whom I think part of that's best known for his TV work, for like the TV iteration of The Odd Couple yes. is a thing that he kind of produced and developed. And also Happy Days and its myriad spin-offs. Uh, Laverne and Shirley and Mork and Mindy. And, and Joni and Chachi. Uh, Marshall is 
is, uh, well, was by all accounts, an extremely lovely man, but somebody who also made entertainment that is pitched at, at, at a very safe mainstream level. Yes. Interesting. He also did a, a TV spinoff of Barefoot in the Park. Oh, wow. That, sound, that's... that sounds very on point for him, but I've, I've, yeah. I've not seen that, but I, I can imagine. And right, Pretty Woman starts as a script by uh, the scriptwriter J.D. Athens, as how they're normally credited. The scriptwriter is kind of mysterious, but apparently it's originally a gritty drama and it mutates into this fluffy fairy tale-esque comedy which at the time kept being referred to as a very sexistly now the tart with the heart is is the, is the genre that gets referred to by the likes of barry norman and other yeah it's that it's strange and there's a weird tension between what the script originally was and the film that actually comes yes i saw this in the cinema in 1990 and i had missed all that because i was 14 when i saw this film in the cinema and i missed the nods to the truth about prostitution yeah. that are glossed over so quickly about prostitutes being murdered drugs poverty the the specter of aids hanging over this film as much as they try to brush it aside oh look i've got some condoms it's fine that all being very much from the male point of view it's okay i'm not going to give you a disease only once she gives a monologue in bed about her first experience and crying and then that's again just glossed over there's vestigial material from when this was a straight drama and jason alexander's attempted rape is lingers in it as a really bad taste in everyone's mouth yes but then again you've got this thing at this point where we still have attempted rape being a thing that happens in pg rated films i mean if you if you recall the full theatrical cut of supergirl and it's a scene that's always cut when it's on tv there's an attempted rape why is this in your pg rated movie but again there's a lot of that at this point there's so many problematic depictions of rape or attempted rape in cinema at this point and hey here it is in in this comedy right and yet everyone always talks about it as being the offbeat in this film but actually there are loads of offbeats in this film yes but then again it feels like it's completely unintentional or they're unaware and I, I suppose you've got is that worse than this being something where a film uses the concept of rape likely in something that's ostensibly a comedy so like Pedro Almodovar's Kika right. has a comedy rip scene in it Jesus Christ thanks Pedro um, oh my god Right, and really, does that need to be there? Are you sure you know what you're doing? And with Almudovar, it's a deliberate provocation, you know. Right, right. But with Pretty Woman, it's they don't quite know what they're doing and they think the feel-good factor will override everything else. If we think about the overall premise that a call girl and client fall genuinely in love, just overall, the points of power, dynamic and exploitation do not travel well, even on into the 90s. The, the premise for it sticks out. It's an enormous hit. It's a very, very lucrative investment, but it does not become a 90s kind of a film, even with Red Chili Peppers in the soundtrack. I think one thing that is very 90s about it, the poster, because I think this might not mark the official point, but I'm going to use it as my dividing line. This is a point where we start to stop getting awesome painted movie posters and get photos that have been shopped. Like famously, that's Julia Roberts' head, but those aren't her legs in that poster. Yes, they use a body double. Yes, but we, we get this going forward. Now, its movie posters will more often or not be boringly arranged photos. Yes. yes you know, uh, or photo composites. And, you know, you've got the uh, the 80s is maybe the last hurrah for movie poster artists like Amsel or Drew Struzan. Yes. I mean, Struzan still works now, but it's, again, it's not the default for movies now. The default is floating heads, bad Photoshop. And, and some of those make very iconic posters in the 90s. The Groundhog Day poster is a photoshopped photograph of Andy McDowell and Bill Murray with him inside the clock but also the dumb and dumber pose of Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels 
Daniels, Keanu's face in that montage on speed of him sort of in action pose. Yes, with I mean, the it's, flames it's, behind it's, you can still do dynamic interesting artwork, yes, yes, if the main elements are photographic rather than painted. Yes. But again, this is sort of a, a, a turning point in that. Yes, this feels like, oh, okay, this is what we're going to do now. And I think what one that strikes me in, in this vein going well into the 90s is the Matthew Broderick Meg Ryan movie Addicted to Love where it's just the most boring fucking photograph of the four characters and it tells you nothing about the film other than Meg Ryan and Matthew Broderick are in this. Yes, but also they have like Pretty Women, it's There's a Song. This film has the title of a famous song and the song will also be in the movie and again there are lots of antecedents for this but I think pretty woman you're just encouraging people to do this wherever and whenever possible guess her song can we change the title to a song we could then use the song on the soundtrack and the soundtrack album for this was yeah also huge yeah you know i know that the soundtrack album post musicals that for instance like the dirty dancing album sold a fucking fortune but you're really hitting that stride where movies need a whole soundtrack album and everyone's going to go buy it we're really getting to that point now with this it's a very competently made movie but it leaves a funny taste in your mouth it isn't a great film no and uh, again i have an impulse to defend gary marshall generally because we can be sniffy about things that are mainstream entertainment or you know the fact that even making pretty woman as as well as it's made it takes an enormous amount of skill that regular people generally don't have but it could be better but the individual scenes that people talk about especially the snapping of the jewelry box shut as being this genuinely charismatic moment of their interaction on screen which does not come to any successful revisiting in the runaway bride that all the hopes and we'll, we'll get on to callbacks to movies where you think everything's back together the gang's back together we'll get on to that this is a one-off for me the the opening montage with the go west tune feels so 80s I remember in 1990 going fuck that's 80s knowing something had changed you know we'd had the whole summer of um, Manchester and Primal Scream and to go holy shit that's the most 80s sounding thing I've ever heard and it's 1990 and I'm 14 thinking how 80s so there are a lot of things about it that feel and Richard even Richard Gere's presence he he changes very to a very different actor and a very different set of choices in the 90s from this everything about it does sit perfectly in our zero year it's it can't escape in either direction really it's trapped in its own contradictions let's move on to the double bill for july so first of all let's go back to british films and to a real oddity on the list I bought a vampire motorcycle. This is interesting. No, there's there's a couple of things intersecting here. One is British television. So this is a film that's basically made by the makers of the ITV show Boone, which was a TV show set in Birmingham and made by Central TV, who were the ITV franchise at that point. For the Midlands. Yes, for the Midlands of England. And yes, it's uh, Michael Elphick and... Neil Morrissey. Neil Morrissey. And bizarrely, C-3PO is a priest. Yes. <laughs> and again, so there's a lot of cast and crew carryover from this. It's basically, it's a thing we'll make during our summer hiatus. And it's sort of terrible, but adorably so. Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's adorable. I, I, I want to sort of, you know, just just protect this movie from from scorn or ridicule because it's achieving exactly what it sets out to do it's dumb schlock it's dumb self-aware horror comedy schlock yes and again this this gets a cinema release in the uk i remember i remember it getting reviewed in sky magazine and other places yeah Yeah. i remember i traveled up on bus to belfast specifically to see it because they were name dropping sam raimi they were name dropping evil dead 2 there's a quote from sam raimi on the poster which (laughs) which with maturity and reflection I, I can see it could be interpreted any number of ways but the quote from Sam Raimi is really horrible exclamation mark 
And <laughs> is he saying it's a bad film or is he saying it's wall-to-wall terrifying displays of viscera and gore-like? Yes. The Evil Dead. And turns out it's both. Yeah, turns out it's mostly both. And it's it's a film that, like, it's got a couple of antecedents, yes. Mm-hmm. Most specifically, there's a now much-loved, terrible early 70s British horror film called Psychomania. Psychomania is the perfect bad film. It's Satan-worshipping bikers kill themselves so they can return as the undead. It's awful, but it's magnificent. And it's kind of harking back to that a lot. Uh, but also, you know, it's a very self-aware of everything it's doing. It is silly and jokey, yes. And yes. when people get killed by the vampire motorcycle there's a motorcycle in it 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 feeds on blood yes these are fun practical effects yes that are in this movie there's stuff in it that doesn't work there's stuff in it that actually genuinely makes me wish that sam raimi or someone with a similar stylistic bent had directed it the point of view shots of the motorcycle just aren't interesting enough you know they're crying out for some of that sort of vertiginous uh wobbly evil dead pov it is lots of fun it plays in cinemas it shifts units on home video it's a film people watch on a friday night with some beers or in the case of some of my friends on acid and they did not know what planet they were on they couldn't get the tone of it right at all when they were in that state but it's it's this it's kind of one of again one of the last hurrahs for that sort of movie from a like 80s meets 90s point of view the presence of neil morrissey in it on his way to men behaving badly looking very similar he's got the kind of long metaler haircut he's playing a very kind of sid the sexist type character when you when you mention that it's like basically a whole bunch of tv makers on hiatus it looks like a tv show on yes yes screen. yes and uh if you look at the rest of the director dirk campbell's um cv it's all children's shows right well here's the thing he the thing i think he's directed most of is there's a children's tv show called broom which is like a, a little sort of anthropomorphic car which i take it is also from birmingham called I, broom <laughs> i actually don't know that but you can absolutely see why he'd be your guy to direct this show yes because it's the main character is a radio controlled special effect so it's like yeah this you'd get this guy he knows exactly how to do this because he did that whole movie with a complicated radio controlled yes know. but but it's the fact that he goes on from this almost exclusively to make british children's tv and he includes a scene in this film where a possessed shit jumps into neil morrissey's mouth after you see a point of view of the toilet and see neil morrissey's bare gate arse that is not the kind of man i'd be going hey do you want to adapt jill murphy's uh worst witch for a t- naughty audience well yeah but you know it's uh, work is work i mean i've seen a lot of his output because i've got kids and yeah. he's a very very competent tv yeah. director yes it is it is it is a tv director you can imagine this film happening 15 years later and it's edgar wright and it's awesome in fact if anyone wants to remake this please get edgar wright to do it i love the sound of this because yes as you said those practical effects the broken glass of the lamp becoming snarling jaws but also i think just the little touches like the Chekhov's gun of halitosis that we keep on talking about michael elphick's predilection for garlic and how that plays out later and another nice little cheap uh, anti-asian racist scene with bert kwok just to get just to get garlic i love bert kwok i i wish he was in better things i know yeah Yeah. and i was really surprised that he agreed to this awful scene which is just complete casual lazy little and large levels of racism yeah but it's 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 the 80s 90s and yes it's it's what you get uh but yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting film. That, you know, it's an interesting cultural artifact. I, I would nearly put it in the category of paracinema along with The Room and others like because it never quite... It, what makes it interesting is it doesn't get it right. That's what makes it precious as a relic. There's one smart thing here because you've got one other sort of British horror film from that year with the mechanical monster. 
Oh, yes. It's hardware. And both of them have the same strategy here. We've got wonky, inexpensive animatronics. And if you're doing that with something that's supposed to be organic, it would look fake and you'd have problems. But if you're doing it with something that's a machine, that's fine. And if there are exposed cables, they're part of the machine. Clever. You know, so it's a clever, you know, that this is what you do. If I had to make a monster I, in a movie and it had to be animatronic and I... Didn't have know, a lot of money. Yeah, you can't afford Rick Baker, but you can't afford the guy who just did Hellraiser or whatever. You yes. would go, make it bio-organic. You know, um, of course. you know, make it a sort of bioorganic machine. That's yes, I said bioorganic. And, and the precedent wrong. for that with Tetsu the Iron Man as well, the cyberpunk thing. Yes, yes. It's just that you could not call a bought a vampire motorcycle a cyberpunk movie. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's go to the other end of the quality spectrum in July because that same month in the UK is a little film called Total Recall. And I've got a little treat for you here. In June of 1990, the much-missed movie drone hosted the British TV premiere of Terminator. And I found Alex Cox's introduction to that. So this is June 1990, so not long before the release of Total Recall. And here he is talking about Arnie. Terminator's greatest asset, of course, is Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was the first of a series of big-budget science fiction action films, which included Predator, The Running Man, and most recently, the $75 million Total Recall. Terminator cost about $6 million. Terminator 2, now in production, is budgeted at $60 million, more than half of which is fees. $60 million is what the United States spends in military assistance to El Salvador in one and a half months. It's also what the wing of a stealth bomber costs. Makes you think. Or maybe not. I'll be back. So, that's an interesting moment in history. A prediction that Terminator 2 is going to cost $60 million. But also referring to this new film about to come out, Total Recall. What, what, what are you thinking now that you hear that well i'm remembering that the uh, actual production cost for terminator was supposed to be 100 million that it went up yes terminator 2 yes it, it went up it's interesting that schwarzenegger even though he'd done conan the barbarian the idea that he would kind of become the poster child for sort of sci-fi action would still have seemed wildly improbable around about 1982 that that would happen but again post terminator it's okay yes schwarzenegger is by virtue of being such an absurd physical presence that you cannot cast schwarzenegger a regular guy which kind of was what they attempt to do here yes but that's that's part of the fun clive james had that very famous quip about schwarzenegger looking like a condom stuffed full of walnuts he has that he's that physique and he has an austrian accent that he will never lose softened by weird californian vowel sounds but never <laughs> never never vanished and yet often not in any way explained away in the characters or scripts yeah i love it when they don't and then i also <laughs> love it when they do it works for me both ways post Terminator, which you think like the Running Man and Predator, yes, yes, and it's yes. Like, okay, well, this is his, this is one of his niches now, yes, and action cinema again at this point because you've got to keep up in the ante and having very special effects intensive action cinema means well, okay, sci-fi action is the way to go, and th that's fine. It's the zenith of, of the, this point of his career. I mean, I, I, I know Terminator Two is much adored as well, but I, I don't think any of the Arnold sci-fi action films achieve the same levels of of gleeful, delirious madness as Total Recall. Not at all. It really does stand out. Paul Verhoeven just goes to town. And Paul Verhoeven is Schwarzenegger's pick 
for this film. That's the way around it goes. Verhoeven doesn't cast Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger casts Verhoeven as the director for this. Yes, but this is the thing. Post-Robocop, Verhoeven is very much in demand. Verhoeven is originally offered Die Hard. And if you actually start looking at the editor and DP of Robocop, like Jan de Bont, who we've mentioned, yeah. and also again, the editor of Robocop, Frank J. Yoroste, you know, he edits Die Hard. He immediately becomes Hollywood's go-to guy for editing action sequences. Yes. yes. So everyone involved in Robocop, uh, its principal architects are like, we've got to get that person for a crazy action movie. So um, yeah, no, Verhoeven is a very astute Oh, totally. The way in which he turns what could easily have been a disastrous move into something so infinitely enjoyable. It's, it's so stands up to the test of time. And it's politically interesting. I know everyone talks about Julia Roberts's Pretty Woman being the most iconic depiction of a sex worker in 90s cinema, but <laughs> I don't know. Total recall. I, I mean, I'm just, it's the fact that the fact that sex workers are an active part of the revolutionary movement is, yeah, it's just delightful. You know, it's the idea that, yes, these are all of the people who are having to find niches. And again, it's an exploitation movie. We have a topless, three-breasted sex worker. But at the same time, I, I think, certainly compared to other things that are happening at that point, I, I think it's a weirdly positive film. You know, yes. it's it's the workers and the sex workers and, you know, the, uh, the blue-collar folk who are being crushed by the system revolting. Yorodowski had done that in El Topo and in um, Holy Mountain, had depicted the, the prostitutes as the people to root for and, and the mutants. You know, there's a lot of, I, I see a lot of, an, especially in El Topo, of like joining the mutants in revolt against the local big men. I, there's a resonance there, but for Hoven, he's such a masterful filmmaker and he makes very high-end trash with a good soul to it. I think, I mean, it's weird because this script had been kicking around for a while. It's a bit... Based on Philip K. Dick's short story, we can remember it for you wholesale. And although Blade Runner had been made, Philip K. Dick is not yet a household name. Not quite, no. So this is a script that had been... Uh, Philip K. Dick dies in 1982. Yes. But this is a script that had been optioned from him. The, the, sorry, the story had been optioned by Dan O'Bannon, right. sort of the originating writer of uh, Alien. Yes. Dan O'Bannon and his then partner, Ronald Shusett, had optioned this story and adapted it. And it had been in circulation for some time. At one point, it was going to be a Dino De Laurentiis production to be directed by David Cronenberg. Oh, my God. Who um, who dropped out. That's one of the great lost films. Talking about Yaradowski, that's like Yaradowski's June, Cronenberg's Total Recall. And at one point, it was going to be directed by Bruce Beresford. Right. Who was going to make it in Australia with New South Wales standing in for Mars. And it, it had been around for ages. And it kind of, at some point, Schwarzenegger got attached to it. And Carol Co. Pictures, who were huge, large production company at the time, who seemed like they were going to be around forever were attached to it. Its moment came at a point where it's now not going to be a cerebral science fiction film. It's going to be an absolutely bonkers, hyper-violent sci-fi action film with satirical elements. Totally. And helps push Sharon Stone towards a long overdue period of stardom. Uh, because obviously, working with Verhoeven on this, she goes on to be the star of Basic Instinct. But I think when it comes to noirish elements and femme fatales, there's a reason why she becomes a star after this. She's fucking great as the queen bitch in this she's superb in it she she's fantastic in this and so too is michael ironside oh, yes 
Yes. And again, Michael Ironside has this difficult role, which is you've got to seem like you're a threat to Schwarzenegger. That's a tricky proposition. And Ironside is just so growly and intense and intimidating. You, we don't even notice the size differential between them, right? Yes, because Ironside has that screen presence. He has that screen presence. And, you know, if you get that wrong, it won't work. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, one of John Senna's earlier forays into action cinema 12 rounds, where the bad guy is Aiden Gillen. <laughs> And, you know, you watch that and you go, you know... And just it's, kill him already. Yeah, yeah, it's neither performer's fault, but you watch that and you think, why doesn't John Senna just snap Aiden Gillen like a twig? <laughs> I could snap Aiden Gillen like a twig. He's, you know, I could take Aiden Gillen in a fight, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But with this, you don't have that issue because Ironside is so intimidating. And it's interesting in his work with Verhoeven going on to Starship Troopers, where he plays another believably intimidating character. He yeah. he just has that. It's, he has that presence. Very much so. All Going all the way back, talking to Cronenberg, going all the way back. To, to Scanners, Scanners. Yeah. An actor whom you can believe is capable of making someone else's head explode by thinking about it hard enough. <laughs> Which is an insane, an insane concept, yes? No, indeed. You just do a close-up of Michael Ironside doing that face and you completely buy it because he has one of those terrifyingly intimidating voices and faces. Just just like Jack Nicholson on a permanent bad day. Yes, like, yes, yes. You can't talk about this without talking about Terminator 2 because they follow so quickly on the heels of each other. I remember getting the video of this in early 1991 and the teaser trailer for Terminator 2 being attacked to it that figures yes because this was Schwarzenegger was the big word on that poster if this had not been the runaway success in the top 10 films of that year would T2 have struggled to get the hype that it got to then dominate the 90s as an idea I don't know I mean I think Terminator 2 would probably have done business either way because of the special effects uh, it might have been marketed differently less of just Schwarzenegger yeah again uh, it's it's interesting here because mm. we talk about Schwarzenegger being this action icon in his prime. And we forget that in one of its major set pieces, Verhoeven has him wearing a dress. <laughs> you know, there's a large chunk of this film where Schwarzenegger is wearing a dress. <laughs> and I, I don't... This, it's full of these strange subversive details like that that I don't think get enough credit. No. But another thing I, I remember at the time, and I'd seen a good few 18 movies by that point, the shock of the levels of incidental violence and the consequence of death of bystanders in some scenes and in fact the mercilessness with which Schwarzenegger turns a freshly dead bystander into a human shield right a joke stolen from a little 1987 low budget horror film called Bad Taste made by oh, some guy called Peter Jackson never heard of him yeah, don't, know, don't know whatever <laughs> became of him but it's it's interesting it's a joke that seems to be consciously lifted from this extremely offensive low-budget splatter comedy. Yes. And here it is again in this glossier context. And yep, that, that joke still works. And and that is the year, also 1990, Brain Dead comes out where we'll maybe dip into Jackson a bit when we're talking about Remy but Jackson's got a long way to go he's also going to make some great movies in the 90s I love the Frighteners but that he's there in Verhoeven's mind I mean it, it could be independent discovery possibly but it it, it, it always felt like a, a lift when we talk about Pulp Fiction and Romero would have done this a lot the bad luck moments of death by violence with no moral or narrative arc other than well that's going to happen for that to cross over into mainstream cinema no there's no fucking fairy tales here there's bullets flying everywhere yeah and it's pushing everything to a new demented cartoony extreme which which is joyous it really is and i think we'll leave that there and move on to one of the cheapest made movies on the list 
list from an American point of view. A very interesting choice. We're going to August 1990 and to Space Invaders. Right. Space Invaders is sort of sci-fi family comedy, which is directed by Patrick Reed Johnson, who also co-wrote the script. And Johnson's a really interesting person. You know, we've got all these figures we've heard of, yes. You know, your Joe Dante's. Yes. New John Carpenters. And the question always is, what happens if one of the directors maybe doesn't get all the breaks they get, or their filmography is smaller, if their dream project doesn't come to pass? Now, Johnson made this film, and it's an entertaining family comedy. It's fine. It's not Time Bandits, but it's like better than a Walt Disney live-action family comedy. Yeah. That That's where it is. The way I feel about it is, it's the kind of film that I would have expected my dad to come home with from uh, the video library in Ballycastle for a kid party and left us to it it's in there with maybe explorers yes and again it's like a joe dante film that is referring to things that the kids watching will not understand you know one of the plot points involves orson welles's war of the world's broadcast yes, yes. it's the inciting incident it really. is really it is yes and a new child is going to understand or know what that is no it's full of that it's like a joe dante film but without joe dante here's the thing around the same time johnson has been developing and trying to get made his dream project which he shoots a demo route which I've, I've seen it before on the internet I don't know if it's still out there but here's this film he wants to make called Dragonheart oh yes ah. and his demo reel for Dragonheart has an animatronic uh, Henson Studios dragon head and for the real his voice is done by Patrick Stewart and the dragon hunter who forms an alliance with this dragon yes. in his demo reel is Clive Owen there's an alternative universe right clearly where Space Invaders had been better or done much better, where he gets that. Oh my God. And Dragonheart, a film from the mid-90s, it's full of CGI. Yes. Comes out earlier and is full of like practical animatronics and has a much more interesting cast. He's one of the nearly men of genre cinema. And he's got this film that I don't know if it ever got released. Every couple of years I see the trailer for it. He's got this film that I think is called It's Something May 77. It's okay. the, it's, it's, it's title is the US release date of Star Wars. Oh, right. And it's about teenage film geeks in 1977, around the time Star Wars comes out. And I have no idea why it's in limbo, but he's one of those guys. You'll sometimes see his names turning up attached to things or related to stuff. And he's not a name, but he could have been, right? There's some, somewhere where the breaks happened differently. So when I saw the budget for this, I thought this is very competently made for the money they have. And the animatronic heads on the child actors of the aliens, very similar to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles levels of technology. It's fine. You can you can see a world where this did better and he got something bigger and was maybe able to prove himself. And in this same year, you have Tremors, another one with a very young um, Ariana Richards playing the, the child in peril. Bigger budget, obviously. And now, you know, a classic film considered from the same year you know small town invaded different tone obviously much more of a horror movie but it's just how this doesn't quite work and yet you know works a lot better than it should have for what the love all the love it got which was none yes i mean it's a it's a film that i feel kind of affectionate towards because Mm. it exists and getting anything made is difficult and getting this goofy premise made must have been difficult and i i wish it was better because i think that's i think that's maybe one of those folk who oh you know there would have been a different 1990s where this film had had a couple more million and had been more polished and would have done well and made back five times its budget gross of 15 million in the cinema no one lost their shirt on that people people got checked and yet 
We're not talking about it. No, it's weird. You know, it, it exists, but it might as well not. And that phenomenon of your dad coming home with a, a video. Films like that stop being made in the 90s. I don't think they stop being made because later on we start getting the realisation that there aren't enough children's films. You start getting things like Three Ninjas. Uh, you know, you start getting these films that are clear children's films made with very much an eye just on the home video market. Like, if we call Charles Band of Empire Pictures, the 80s, it's all sci-fi and horror schlock. It, it's Metal Storm. It's, uh, it's Reanimator, which I yes. love, yes. It's, yes, oh God, I love Reanimator. But like, um, 90s, he starts also making children's films, right? Mm-hmm. Like, pre-hysteria. He starts making films that are for kids, right? He starts going, okay, well, uh, you know, I can pay enough for somebody to do some stop-motion animation or some animatronics who can have, you know, a, a creature that a child will interact with in this cheaply shot B-movie that, you know, will sit on a shelf and blockbuster and get rented. And and will make back its investment. See, I'm hearing an alternate universe where Sam Raimi's doing that. Because Sam Raimi was the, I will make you back your investment. Evil Dead 2 was that, I will make you back your investment. You'll get paid for me making this film. Well, I think the thing is, you have to understand what the process of making a properly funded film for a studio or a larger production company can do to a filmmaker, especially if they have not previously worked that way. And the thing with Sam Raimi is, and quite famously really, is that Evil Dead is a film that was made by him on a stupidly long schedule, yes, a stupidly long shooting day. And he carried that model with him over to his first studio funded film, Crime Wave, which is sort of a disaster. And his, a disaster with some awesome set pieces in it but he carried over that oh that working method onto like a union shoot and there's a lot of friction yes it's a difference between I've made this film and the money came from 17 dentists from I'm making this film there's executives and these are you know the studio have sent a line producer to the set to hector me you know it's it's that and commonly we'll think about this being the system of pressing the filmmaker yes not letting them live out their vision but you know it's it, workers it's a, yes it's business and it's workers and you, you shouldn't be working your crew that long your sound stage should maybe be heated if you're shooting in winter in Detroit yes your sound stage should be heated and these various things Remy learnt all of these lessons on that second film if you look at the interviews for he did Circa Evil Dead 2 one of the things he mentions and I've seen this mentioned a couple of times he talks about the film's budget and the fact that he brought it in under that budget it's this kind of look at me I turn up and set now in a shirt and tie I am respectable you can give me your money and this will go fine it, it's very different moving from one sphere into another where if you're maybe an amateur or a non-union low budget filmmaker being given money and then suddenly there's executives giving you notes and you're under pressure and maybe not every filmmaker transitions from that into the into the world of politicking and chicanery and you know now let's talk about moving on a real seasoned filmmaker Walter Hill and your choice for September which is another 48 hours yeah a real archetypal turkey of a movie yes it's it's trying to be the same film again very much so many awful useless callbacks like yes it's it's totally redundant I think the first 48 hours is a, a vital piece of cinema and I don't know if you've looked at Netflix's recent show Voir which is a series of video essays by critics and filmmakers on film texts or concepts that are important to them and the film critic Walter Chow has an essay on 48 Hours where he talks about it as being an extremely pertinent and important film about race relations yes. made more so by the fact that it's also profane and doesn't care if it causes offence you've got the Eddie Murphy of 48 Hours where it's who is this explosively talented young performer we've never seen before oh yeah. indeed 
right. saying the things that are unspeakable but in scenes we'd like to see oh, like oh. the you know the, so much of the conversation about 48 hours is there's a scene where Eddie Murphy a black man goes into a redneck bar and just kicks a shit out of rednecks so archetypal the action in it the comedy in it the Eddie Murphiness of it and it, it's great and then by 1990 we've got Eddie Murphy's been doing the Eddie Murphy thing for a while yeah. and it's getting tired oh he's phoning it in in this yes he's he's phoning it in and it's it feels very much like studio we need the hit almost the whole gang is back together including James Horner that 1982 soundtrack is fucking stunning Re- like you know James Horner he's two great soundtracks that year it's also Ratha Khan great film composer they bring him back in and just like in Weekend at Bernie's it's like that is an anachronism that doesn't belong now it's 1990 and that's just one of the many callbacks Eddie Murphy still singing Roxanne I, I, exactly yes that was hilarious for a black man to be doing falsetto impression of Sting in 1982 also it's really pointed as well because it's the police a band full of skinny white guys <laughs> who are straight up borrowing or lifting a lot of things from uh, artists uh, yeah artists signed to Trojan Records 15 years earlier yes, yes. yes. Um, but in 1990 it's just tired it's yeah like, 1990 that's tired and, and dull and we don't need it no but also retconning Brian James's characters haven't been the baddie all along at the very last minute in a plot that does not hang together no no it's it, it's embarrassing and yet they banked so much on it the hype around it was so huge it did make a profit but it's it's not any good but you probably could have made a sequel to 48 hours we could probably have made a film which is like what are these characters at no but no they, they didn't do that they, they kind of recycled the plot of the original but to diminishing effect you could almost have imagined quite a successful non crime plotted another 48 hours of this odd couple together like the almost more of a straight up comedy I don't know there's so many ways in which you could have the dynamic chemistry of Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy in 82 is wonderful and in this it's so fucking tired just the contrived re-establishment of their enmity in such a clumsy premise oh Eddie's had to spend more time in jail and Nick Nolte didn't save him it doesn't work and and again this is our zero year. This is another moment of the 80s dying. And in a summer where it really hadn't, where Back to the Future 3 and Gremlins 2 had really carried 80s products over to big success in 1990 cinema, this was so universally panned, and rightly so. And, you know, Walter Hill has serious utter cred. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to find a Walter Hill film that there isn't somebody going to bat for. No one's going to bat for this one. Here's an experiment. Watch this and then watch The Warriors. Fucking hell. You cannot actually believe it's the same filmmaker. Maybe enough said there. Let's talk about another sequel, October, and let's talk about Robocop 2. Why did you pick this? Because it's, okay, it's stylistically, it's certainly in terms of its look, it's it's a pure transitional film from late 80s to 90s it is vividly chromatic in places in ways that feel very of that particular time like the use of graffiti in it you know again this is sort of okay well you know this is I don't want to say like Spike Lee's do the right thing because it's a masterpiece and I don't like mentioning masterpieces and films that are bad in the same sentence yes. but you know it's that same kind of look there are vivid colours now on the streets might be interesting to put characters up against them and use them as backdrops so it's that evolution of street art it's, it's trying to use that so this is produced by Orion Pictures 
Rangers, who have had a good run in the 80s. Yes, they're yes. sort of a mini major. They're not a big studio, they're a mini major. But around pictures, you know, they have they've had Amadeus, they've had the original Terminator, yes. They've yes. had they've had films that you know, did well. But as always happens, these smaller entities usually end up starting to struggle. And what Orion really need is a franchise. And Robocop 2 is a sequel to Robocop made without a lot of the core architects of the original film. It doesn't have the writers, it doesn't have Paul Verhoeven directing, and it's a film that also famously lost its director very shortly before it was about to shoot. It was originally supposed to be directed by Tim Hunter. Maybe another one of those nearly men, Tim Hunter, the director of River's Edge, and he was supposed to direct it. That's a very different film. Yes. Hunter was also, in the late 80s, early 90s, one of the names attached to Judge Dredd. Oh my I God. think Tim Hunter really wanted to make some kind of violent comic kabuki sci-fi action film, which <laughs> seems unlikely if you look at River's Edge, but okay. And he walked because he thought the script wasn't ready. And it was literally a case of, we need to contact another director. And they needed to get somebody who's at least familiar enough with the demands of a film that will have that much stop motion visual effects in it. And so Irvin Kirshner made uh, Empire Strikes Back. Well, I say made, he directed Empire yes. Strikes Back. And he also directed Never Say Never Again, Never which I think should have given them pause here. Yeah. You know, because Empire Strikes Back, okay. One of the great sequels, I guess. Lawrence Kasdan's script probably had a lot to do with that. Yes, and Never Say Never Again is absolutely garbage. And you should tell us something about how Evan Kirshner approaches action sequences and the answers badly and boringly. And the script to Robocop 2 is credited to Frank Miller. And it's co-written also well by Waylon Green, who wrote The Wild Bunch. Uh, right. I think he, he fixed up Miller's strange mistakes or, you know, or, or maybe toned stuff down, yes. But it's credited both of them, yes. Yeah. And Miller will become an important and influential figure in cinema, but not at this moment. And yeah. the film is basically all of the things that detractors of Robocop wrongly accused it of being. You know, it's 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 noisy and kind of mindless and hyper-violent and it's full of jokes and satire that don't work. Like the Boy Scout shop robbers stick up boys and... Yes, yes. Yeah. And it's also got one of the most bafflingly misjudged scores. Robocop! Yeah, it's like Verhoeven's original has this amazing score by Basil Poldoris that's sort of instantly anthemic. Yeah, it's an amazing score. And they don't bring Poldoris back. They bring back, oh, Leonard Rosenman, who does a very clunky, in effect, orchestral score. And over the end credits, there's the children's choir singing Robocop oh, over and over again so... for reasons that pass all human understanding. I mean, properly fucking hilarious. I like. I rewatched this at like six in the morning. I hadn't seen this since the early 90s. And I started laughing my head off because I was watching it through headphones and it's you can't actually believe what you're hearing yes now the only impressive thing about Robocop 2 is the effects work Rob Boutine who again also did Total Recall busy man that year yes he does again the Robocop suit except he makes it bluer and shinier this time and that's a mistake it, it looks fakey it looks like fiberglass yes it yes. does now look like fiberglass yes and Phil Tippett who's uh, whose studio had done the stop motion effects for the original Robocop and for Empire Strikes Back he does some a very very impressive stop motion here it's the uh, the technique is go motion I believe where it's you're not simply moving a model then taking a new frame of it you're taking your frame whilst the model is is in motion, yes. So you get blur. You've rolled, yes, you get motion blur. And that famously is how you got the Tauntaun running across Hoth looking yes. so revolutionary in 1980. Yes, yes, and it's the same thing here. And the, you know, the effects work is terrific and yes. really the only reason for any sane person to look at this film again. Indeed. And yet the abyss has just been and Terminator 2 is coming and Cameron is about to blow. It's interesting that the abyss, ha I mean, I remember watching the abyss on video in 1990 going, I've no reference 
reference point for these effects. And yet it didn't yet herald the end of the stop motion. No, no. But I mean, again... But it, it would. I mean, It would eventually, yes. Fairly swiftly. But no, Robocop 2 is, is bad. It, it underperforms, which hastens the demise of Orion Pictures. You know, it, it starts the long tradition of all Robocop media, apart from the original film, being terrible, which is just unbroken. There is. And also the, the sterilizing of the Robocop media eventually of making it child-friendly, 12A, again, losing. I mean, the violence of Robocop was so inherent to its satirical edge was how explicit and exploitative it was. That's part of Verhoeven's genius. Yes. I, it's also interesting as well, because this uh, film is an artifact of an era when we can't easily create visuals digitally. So, um, so for instance, if you think about the Robocop point of view shots, that's traditional animation techniques, yes? That's the, right. te- the scan lines or lines drawn drawn on India ink oh on an acetate, yes. God, wow. And an image of that taken in that's optically composited over your yeah. regular shot. And so too are the text in the corner of the screen. And this is all rust from animation. And that's that's insane. And again, that's about to just drop off a cliff. Right. Because within a couple of years, right, within four years when they're doing the bad live action Robocop TV show, all of that stuff is being done digitally on a compositor called the Video Toast, which is a machine that was kind of built around an Amiga 500. And this was an item so inexpensive that it, in the U.S., community colleges and high schools that taught broadcasting or media had these. You know, this was a kind of like, you know, not not the hundreds of thousands you'd expect for a professional vision mixer. This was like the first affordable kind of vision mixing tool for the masses. And they were using it to make a TV show, like a mass well, but they were, Yeah, they were using it for this, but this is this is what happens within a couple of years. It's like, you, you would not you would not use a, a, an animation rostrum no, or a down shooter to do these effects ever again. You know, you would now have, well, here's this thing. You could buy the thing you need to do this in Radio Shack. Uh, you know, and that happens so quickly. Special effects are all basically about to move. And, and the only computer effects in this really are Tom Noonan's scanned face when he becomes the second Robocop yeah. in, a, in a technique also used, I think, in Lawnmower Man a couple of years later with Pierce Brosnan, which now looks so 80s. It looks very 80s. And again, Terminator 2 is coming. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's technically, it's computer-generated character animation, but very primitive. It's his face and it can scream and grimace and... I guess it's fine because it's supposed to be a computer-generated image within the context of that film, in that world. So that, yes. that's fine. But yeah, it, it's been a while since anyone was actually impressed by it. Let's move to the other end of quality. Same month, I, we could not be talking about a more different film. And it is another one of those, let's say 1990, what's everyone going to say? They're going to say Goodfellas. Now, give me a picture of where Scorsese is on the eve of this film coming out. Scorsese is critically respected, but commercially starting to look kind of like a busted flush. I mean, Color of Money does well, but he's, I think his film prior to this is Last Temptation of Christ. It is. Well, yes, he, he has one feature in that trilogy, that triptych came out in 89 with uh, Woody Allen, Scorsese. Oh yes, New York Stories, yeah. yes, yes. But the f- last full feature he got had landed him in massive fucking hot water, which was Last Temptation of Christ. Yes, and, and again, it's his, his 80s output. You know, he's made films that are revered critically and like kind of acquire cult followings, yes. After hours. After hours in King of Comedy, yes. yes. But it's been a while since Scorsese had any kind of impact on the mainstream. So let's say, let's go to another zero year, 1980 Raging Bull. Raging 
raging bull, Which yes. we'll come back to in a future series. But no one's expecting this, are they? No. I mean, again, it's not out of sympathy at all with his previous films. Uh, obviously, I hate the truism where people say Scorsese only makes mob movies, which he doesn't. It's like no. less than a fifth of his entire output. But, you know, it, you can see a straight line between this and Mean Streets yes. and Raging Bull. But it is the degree of style. Mm-hmm. applied to a narrative and script that are also incredibly tight and completely riveting. Voiceover is normally bad. Voiceover is used badly more often than it's used well. And here, voiceover and image are integrated and edited together so well, it just feels so immersive. I think it's safe to say, when we're talking about tipping points between two decades, Goodfellas changes what cinema goers expect of this kind of movie in the 90s, completely. And and our cinema goer from the 80s could be quite surprised by this film and what comes after it. Would Tarantino have been so successful if audiences hadn't been warmed up by this movie? I don't know. I mean, it's, it certainly makes a gangster film. Crime films seem a, a much more viable genre. Commercially, you know, this is this is an exciting look at bad people doing terrible things. And again, its use of music is, again, all of Scorsese's films make terrific use of music, but yes. this one makes particularly great use of music. No composer in this film. This is no. Every one of these is what is a needle they call drop. a needle drop. Yeah. Yes. Every one. Uh, and, and so perfectly picked by him again who would it go on to do that all the time Tarantino yes and again it's it's weird but Ray Liotta does not become a huge star in, in the way that he some might have expected. And this film isn't apart from Joe Pesci. This film is not loved at the Academy Awards. De Niro gets nominated for Awakenings, not for his wonderful, terrifying performance in this. It's it's so funny that Scorsese takes a long time to get loved by the Academy because this is a masterpiece. And and also uh, Michael Powell's widow, the editor of this film. Yes, Thelma Schoonmaker. Just the secret other director of this film is her. Oh yes, she you know, she's, yes, her, her editing's incredible. And again, revolutionary and changes the game. So I think if we can say a pivot moment. Yes, yes. This is a 90s film, not yes, an 80s yes, film. Yes, this is so 90s. In fact, it decides what the 90s will be. Yes. Totally and utterly. So much has been said about this. Find me the person that doesn't like this film and there's something wrong. Oh no, there's folk who don't like it simply because it is so violent. Okay. Which is, that's a reasonable objection. You know, if you do not like violence in cinema, yes, this yes. film that is extremely violent may not be you know true liking you know but to argue in any way about its quality no it's 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 it's, it's a perfect film i made a little column of like up and coming and in this obviously the tiny cameo of samuel samuel l jackson tells you nothing about what a star he's soon going to be no it, it tells you nothing in the role of stacks yes. yes all he does is die really shockingly yeah. uh, but also i mean joe pesci okay yes he'd been in Lethal Weapon 2 and a few other things but he'd been absent most of the 80s and then this and we'll go on to another film with him very soon he just burns the celluloid yes yes he's he's incredible in this he's a uh, it's maybe the most incandescent performance in a gangster film since Cagney and White Heat you know it's still after all these years and after all my expectations it's scarier than Anthony Hopkins and Silence of the Lambs yes it it is scarier and and this is even after all of the parodies and you know uh, repetitions of it you know it's um, it does not blunt it it's still makes you shit yourself and i think the for me the worst scene is when they're digging up the body and he's taunting the rest of them with the yeah. the body parts and you just realize how utterly dehumanized this character yes is. he's like, a complete psychopath oh it's it's amazing not sure what much more to say do you want to talk about slit of the jugger or should we move on to dark man well i'm gonna mention slit of the jugger briefly because this doesn't oh, happen right. anymore this is another space invader situation where it's a v movie made at that budget getting released in cinemas like sub a million dollars well 
Well, I'm not entirely sure. Just, I mean, Salute of the Jugger looks good. Not that you'd know, because it's a very hard film to get now. Well, I haven't watched it because I couldn't find it. <laughs> right, you can order the Blu-ray on import from Japan. There's a there's an out-of-print DVD from the UK from about 20 years ago. I think it's available in Germany. It's, okay. It's hard to get. Yes. It's a post-apocalyptic sci-fi film with Rutger Hare and Joan Shen in it. And they are members of a troupe of uh, wandering athletes who play a sport just called the game. And it's a, a violent sport, yes, violent contact sport that's sort of like hurling, but more so. And yes, the script is by David Peoples, who also directs it. And it's okay. the only film he's directed, and he's the screenwriter of Unforgiven and co-writer of Twelve Monkeys and of Blade Runner. And it's a script he actually wrote in the 1970s. And it's almost—I uh, could make an argument for it being the last 70s science fiction film. I was going to say it sounds the premise sounds so 70s. Yes, it feels like it could be a novel. It feels like it could be a you know a downbeat uh, 1970s science fiction novel, and it is great. It's very hard to track down. But it's had its weird impact in that before there was Quidditch, this movie sport did the same thing. People actually tried to play. People it. actually played jugger. People still play jugger. Wow. There's a jugger team down in Dublin. Oh my god. People goodness. play. It. This makes sense because it's almost. It feels like it could be a GAA sport. Yes. <laughs> yes. And this is a type of movie that again, most people who saw this would have seen it in VHS, but it did get a cinema release, and it's kind of like small budgeted sci-fi cult item. And I can imagine something like that maybe getting an art house release but this 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 played in mainstream venues went to video it's kind of forgotten about now is this an effect of people's expectations of special effects they were more tolerant of before Terminator 2 more tolerant of that well even at this point it's an anachronism because this is the same year as Total Recall and Robocop 2 and people expect more in terms of visual spectacle and this film is very much anti that imagine a Mad Max film where everyone just walks it's almost that is there a movie drum effect are we beginning to curate cult cinema and have expectations of it that would allow some taste for this yeah I mean I think this is a film where the fact that people still play that sport for real that there's still a a small but devoted cult following surrounding this movie it strikes me this is the most cult cinema film on this list yeah it's the most cult cinema film on this list maybe of all time it sounds like it's starting to sound like of all time right but also it's Rutger Hare whom at one point looked like he could have been a big star now I associate him with films like this yes you see him with films like this and soon he'll just be in things like this that do genuinely just go direct to video and that's pretty much where Rutger Hare will stay and playing baddies in Smallville yes yes that kind of work but no it's it's interesting. It's an interesting artifact. It's a kind of film that doesn't really exist anymore. And even then felt wildly out of time. It's a script from the 70s, but you can pretty sure at the pitch meetings when they're trying to get funding for this, we're going like, well, it'll be like Mad Max. Also, we're shooting in Australia. We'll have a lot of the same personnel that worked on those films. So that you can go like, oh, okay, okay. Have, but, have, have, your, have your modest budget to make this. But certainly nothing like this really rolls into the 90s. No, no. no. It's, a, it's a different studio start making cult-like films for bigger budgets with an understanding of a taste for it that audience but they are not cult films no i hear you okay talk of cult directors we've talked about him a bit before dark man november 1990 this film is insane this is sam rimai's fourth film it's his first film for a major studio his second film crown wave is for embassy who were kind of a mini major sort of the a24 of their day the universal pictures put this out and it had been in development with them but it's one of those films that got fast-tracked when in 1989 batman came out and was hugely successful so it's not based on a pre-existing comic book property but it is very much 
in that tone. It's, it's bits of the shadow. It's bits of Swamp Thing. And yet hyper-violent. It's extremely violent. And therefore not going to be a mainstream R-rated hit. No, but it did go to number one at the US box office because its marketing campaign was off the hook. Uh, Universal had very cleverly marketed this. Leading up to the summer, there were like posters just yes. saying, who is Darkman? They built a question around this film before it came out, yes. I remember at the time, and I've, I've lost it, but a, um, a, a friend had peeled off a sticker that had been attached to another film can from a Universal release earlier in the year and it was like a Who is Darkman sticker somebody's like oh yeah mix obsessed with Sam Raimi hey, that's his new film he'll want this and I had this I, I wish I knew where I'd put it but they were like putting Who is Darkman stickers on like their film canisters so you know it was extremely well hyped and then it, then it opens and it is a crazy film that audiences aren't ready for no indeed so it opens at number one it drops off very quickly and Ghost knocks it off and you know Darkman it, it, it acquires a very healthy cult following it gets broadcast in movie drum in 93 it's sort of compromised in that it's a studio work and there's clearly things in it that Remy would like to have done that didn't happen because it's studio money but there's also and this wasn't revealed until last year again I'd mentioned earlier that one of the biggest issues with a, uh, making a film is the cost of distribution and at this point in time getting prints made so Sam Remy and his producer Robert Tappert pulled a fast one on Universal Pictures a thing they didn't talk about until like literally it's 30th anniversary and though they were asked to make a number of changes to the version that was to be released they had their preferred cut mixed and sent to the printers so the first time Universal knew that this director and producer had gone against them they were screening it for critics oh my god the prints existed you know so well at that point the hands of being forced were putting out this version of the movie it's one of those cool stories of and again it's the analog era where you could do this where they took control back surreptitiously which, which is interesting and this is before we start talking about director's cuts before Blade yes, yeah, yes yes yeah. yes and again it's, it's probably not fair to say it's a director's cut because there was already compromises made along that route yes, right, yes. so but preferred version and it's interesting it uh, people a decade later will say gosh they're letting the evil dead guy make a spider-man movie that sounds weird what an odd choice but it's not this no. is a superhero movie with a big budget and a studio backing and distribution and before Liam Neeson was an action movie I was going to say yes this is Liam Neeson in an action movie this film's way ahead of the curve on a whole bunch of levels and we're talking about two years before Schindler's List which is what three years before Schindler's List three years before Schindler's List yes and Liam Neeson's not a household name till then not really he's the lead in this he's a mute guy and suspect Ah, share yes right. you know, that, that may be what American audiences know him best for but certainly he is not a leading man for a long time to come no and if you look at the cast of that film when it came out because Frances McDormand's in it but Frances McDormand is oh right she was in Blood Simple yes. yeah yeah she's a long way off Fargo still. yes yes in fact if, if, so if you look at the cast right it seemed that there was an equal possibility that Larry Drake who had been Benny in LA Law who has a lower mental age than that adult normally should but he works in the office and he's benign and he's this nice cuddly character so Larry Drake playing this terrifying Edward G. Robinesque gangster who's casting against type and at that point I thought like oh is Larry Drake now going to be a thing because we can see that Larry Drake has enormous range and that didn't happen no. Larry Drake's other big film credit is like Dr. Giggles a terrible slasher movie right <laughs> okay. and there's the Australian actor Colin Friels who McKean could have been an Eason could have been like this is a person who's come from another nation yes is in Hollywood now they, they've got the good looks they've got the presence they can do a much better American accent than Neeson ever will manage and no he does not become a huge star 
or he coos back to Australia. But if you think in alternative universes where Neeson doesn't get Schindler and where Francis McDormand doesn't get Fargo, are we talking about just a completely loser cast never making it? I don't know. It's it's weird. I mean, certainly none of the cast names are mentioned in the trailer. You know, if you look at the trailer for it, it's just a concept. It's not telling you who's in it. It mentions the director. Because he has that cachet with Evil Dead too. Yes, there's a cult audience that will at least turn up if they know it's the Evil Dead guy. But put it this way, when I watched that film on VHS in 91, I was excited. For the first time in that film, the face I recognised was Bruce Campbell in the crowd at the end. That's the most known actor in that film for me at that time because I'd been such a massive fan of Evil Dead 2. It's weird as well because Bruce Campbell, the who only appears in that one shot at the end of it, you can audibly hear the bits of ADR that he did when various people are getting, you know, killed or beaten up. You can hear the various Bruce Campbell-y sort of grunts or moans or yelps and screams. Because Sam's got to give that boy a job every time. Yes. So Dark Man, 90s or 80s? It's 90s. It's weird. It's where the 90s are going to go. We're going to end up with these sort of R-rated superhero movies throughout the 90s. And when I say superhero movies, I'm not meaning strictly speaking films adapted from comics, but obviously things like Spawn and The Crow are part yes. of that conversation. But I think so too is The Matrix, yes. which this film has shared a cinematographer with. Uh-huh. Bill Pope, very crucial figure in how this genre will move forward. No, very interesting. Okay, let us finish the year off with a really interesting pivot moment in cinema in so many ways. Let's talk about Home Alone. Okay, so it's John Hughes deciding he's not going to make films about teenagers anymore or films about irresponsible adults anymore yes. being the focus of attention. It's John Hughes pivoting to children's movies. And yes. John Hughes not directing. It's John Hughes writing and producing, but the directing is Chris Columbus. Yeah. Can I say there's a hint of this in Uncle Buck? Yes. That he's moving this way. Uncle yeah. Buck is Uncle Buck is half a Brat Pack movie, a teen drama, and half this. Yes, because Macaulay Culkin's in Uncle Buck and is very amusing in the scenes where he talks back. And okay, here's a resource I can use that. Yes, I can use this young performer and make them the centerpiece of this high concept comedy action film set at Christmas. And it works. It, it functions perfectly well. I think right now we have certainly seen a lot of conversations about class mm-hmm. in relation to this film you know because what does Kevin's dad do how are they rich it's certainly the point at which I noticed that all of these John Hughes characters are super well off Ferris Bueller yes yes the, the rich kids in Pretty in Pink and some yes, kind of wonderful yes yes it, it's that but it's also him kind of moving to wacky slapstick the, the future will bring us Curly Sue and Baby's Day Out and other movies that are these are children's movies and there are hints of that in Christmas Vacation yes there are hints of it yes A, similar like Big House in Suburbia and wacky Pratt Falls. I mean, I guess with Home Alone, it's okay. It's pesky being funny again. John Candy has a supporting role. Really? Just a cameo? Yes, it really to cameo. Yeah, it's quite fleeting, but it's very welcome. And a callback to Uncle Buck. And, and also to his other, I guess, great holiday comedy film, Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Indeed, yes. Which I realise is Thanksgiving, not Christmas, but it's... Where you're on a slippery downward icy slope to Christmas at Thanksgiving movies yes no indeed and and yet obviously the big difference is the crude gross out of planes and trains is just gone yes it's gone this is polite this is a PG rated film you can take your seven year old child to and this is the John Hughes film that it makes sense is now on Disney Plus and branded as Disney since Disney bought out Fox and this is it John Hughes does not go back from this no 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 and and John Hughes had already taken well if you look at previously to this right John Hughes had made She's Having a Baby so John Hughes could have gone 
fallen into this serious adult drama for yes this is he dips his toes in there and takes brat pack actors into adulthood with yes, him yes which is you know road not taken because he goes into family comedy and it's it's perfectly fine but just like Scorsese this film decides what the 90s will be yeah. just like Goodfellas John Hughes says I do this now and everyone's going to want a piece of this and again this is also a thing that's going to be driving a lot of family films mm-hmm. fueling that desire for this kind of cinema yes where it's not like okay well we'll drop the kids off at a Disney cartoon it's like no there's going to be live action cinema for, for children you know and family audiences again and we will try and do it this way and make it as, as grand and cinematic as possible I mean there's there's some over the top set pieces in it that mm. are fun there's a John Williams score those are never not fun it has amusing uh, actors playing the adults I don't love Home Alone but I can perfectly understand why people do and what a funny end to the year it is a film that never goes out of fashion or style that, that once it's in it, it becomes an instant Christmas classic and it never ever stops being that and at one point I, I was thinking about having a theme called the two Kevins Kevin from Home Alone and Kevin Costner because late in 1990 all the money's on Kevin Costner having a great 90s but that's not the Kevin that has a great 90s whereas this Kevin although Macaulay Culkin has a terrible life after this Kevin in this moment just lasts forever with with everyone never stopping loving this film although we skipped it the other night at the drive-in it's like fuck it nah no I would would skip seen it seen it often enough now and it doesn't yield anything new when I rewatch it no no very much not and I'm sure there are other films children's films even we could think that still do but no it does not bear rewatching. it it, it's tired well that is uh, quite the trip through 1990 cinema and uh, I think we can definitely see this as a crashing of two decades into quite a tectonic fault line Mick we'll speak to you again in the uh, season finale thank you so much for leading us through this no thank you and a big thanks to Mick for that excellent episode and all the marvellous research that he's done to make that what it was so um, now as usual it's over to you You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter by searching at Zeros Podcast. And as I always say, Zeros is spelt O-E-S at the end. Um, You can also email us, zerospodcast at gmail.com. And I always ask that everyone, although you can be robust and critical, please be respectful and non-abusive. Big thanks as always to uh, our composer of our brilliant theme tune, Mr. Tony Wright, a.k.a. Verse Chorus Verse. And I will always ask that if you enjoy this music, go and listen to it all at versechorusverse.bandcamp.com. That's versechorusverse.bandcamp.com. And if you like what you hear, buy his music, because artists don't make enough money from streaming. I always give a little thanks to our very good podcasting friends, Krista and Dave from the Pop Collaborate and Listen podcast. And as I said last week, please listen to some of their 1990 episodes before our music episode in two weeks' time. Krista and Dave will be guesting then. But go and listen to their podcast just because it's class, it's hilarious, and we should support independent podcasts as much as possible. Please also... Go back and listen, not just to the fashion episode with Murren, 
which was released last Friday. But also on Wednesday Night Gone, we released an episode with the writer, the cultural and political historian Alvin Turner about the fall of Margaret Thatcher in 1990. Susie and I interviewed him and we had a really, really good time doing that. And really, for the long view of what's happening in British politics at the moment, it is a fascinating listen. Talking about Susie, she is our main contributor next week when we will be talking about the television of 1990 and I promise you an absolutely hilarious time. We had such a laugh recording that one as well and I hope you do listening to it too. So I'll uh, sign out for now and I'll see you next week. Thanks now. Start a brand new